When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Meet Calvin. Hi. Calvin won 50 bucks off his roommate. That's because Calvin has the iHeartRadio app. iHeartRadio. Which he used to make a pasta song playlist. I'm a genioki. Calvin blasted this on repeat after betting his roommate couldn't complete a four-day juice cleanse. Oh, I can. The song Proper Pappardell pushed him over the edge. Mm, I love carbs. Good thing Calvin is one of millions with the iHeartRadio app. Download it today and get paid to ruin your roommate's stupid cleanse. Like Calvin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 160. To start, a quick note of appreciation to all the listeners of last week's Watersheds episode who wrote in on our social media accounts at, at The Lineup Pod. We had a ton of feedback and responses, and we really appreciate it. Um, as always, we do our best to respond to everyone, uh, regardless of topic. So keep them coming. And thank you again for your support on the Watersheds format. Stop number nine on the 2023 WSL Championship Tour, the Corona Open J-Bay, will finish this week. And despite a somewhat sleepy start to the event window, all reports are that the next couple of days should be pumping with the world's best surfers looking to lock up their positions in the WSL Final Five for a shot at the world title at September's Rip Curl WSL Finals. The Corona Open J-Bay will be streaming live at worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. Do not miss it. All right, episode 160. Today's guest is someone who mercifully stretches the subject matter and guest diversity on our podcast. You know, we are a podcast on the WSL platform. So naturally, uh, our conversations often revolve around the platform of the world's best surfing. But as we've maintained since the beginning, the connective tissues, the common threads between surfers from all backgrounds, skill levels, interests, are a lot stronger and closer than you may think. And today's guest is a perfect example of that. A journalist, published poet, a staff writer at The New Yorker. She's also the host of the podcast Lost Hills by Pushkin Industries, now in its third season, a season that dives into the life and legacy of Malibu surf legend Mickey Dora, a figure whose impact was not only limited to Malibu or California or America, but rather the global surfing world, for better and worse. We dive into all these topics in today's episode. Please enjoy the lineups conversation with Dana Goodyear. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did, I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut you lips. And now I just say, put him up once, let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's a here boxing. <laughs> All 
All right, so we're back and we have a very special guest today. She is a journalist, a poet, a staff writer at The New Yorker, and she is also the host of the podcast Lost Hills by Pushkin Industries, now in its third season, a season that dives into the life and legacy of Malibu surf legend Mickey Dora. Dana Goodyear, thank you so much for joining us on the lineup. Thank you for having me on. So first things first, you know, a little scene set, you know, where are you today? Who are you with? How are you doing? Um, I'm doing great. I am in Little Compton, Rhode Island, which is a little East Coast beach community. Um, I'm with my kids. I'm with my dog. Um, Yeah, just took a walk with my mom and my dog. Um, So like a pretty beautiful day out here. It's been rainy and stormy, um, but we've had little waves. So my son and I went surfing last night and that was beautiful. We're the only people in the water. That's an idyllic summer day on either coast, I think, you know? Yeah. I, I personally, I'm, I'm really excited to speak with you. All of the seasons of, of Lost Hills, which I got to binge as an excuse for work, are excellent. And, and this latest season, season three, about Mickey Dora is, is truly great. And, you know, our, our own podcast here at The Lineup, you know, we endeavor to be open to all things surfing. And, and we are proud that we've had a pretty wide ranging and diverse set of guests and subject matters over the last couple of years. But since our home is the World Surf League, more often than not, our conversations tend to be around the modern era's elite surfers on the championship tour. Um, but that said, I, I personally and professionally believe that there exists connective tissue between all things surfing and that often there aren't as many degrees of separation as you think there'd be between a lot of figures and subjects in this culture. So for our listeners, can we start by getting just a little bit of background about yourself and, and how you got into journalism. Oh, how I got into journalism. Uh, well, I just kind of learned by doing, honestly. I was an English major in college and moved to New York without a very solid plan for how to um, turn my interest in reading and writing into rent paying. Um But I ended up getting an assistant job at The New Yorker and then kind of hung on for dear life. And I moved to California in 2005, essentially the beginning of end of 2004, beginning of 2005, and was able to keep writing for the magazine from California, which has been great. But um, just to for sort of surf world listeners, one thing that connects my New Yorker life to the world of surfing just in a small way was one of the first people that I became friends with at the magazine because I worked for his editor. I was his editor's assistant was Bill Finnegan. And at that point, he was um, kind of slowly, slowly, we heard rumors that he was working on his surf book forever and ever. But um, I think that he just uh, threw his surf writing in the magazine and I think starting in the 80s, that was some of the stuff that I read when I first got to The New Yorker because right. my boss sort of said, you know, read everything great by all the writers that you're going to be working with. Um, so that was my int- introduction to surf writing as literature. Um, and it was actually pretty fun for this podcast about Mickey Dora. Bill was one of the people I went to and said, okay, 
do you have Mickey Dora stories? (laughs) I know some of your friends have Mickey Dora stories. And in fact, two of the guys that the episode where it's two guys talking about meeting Mickey in France in the seventies, those are Bill's friends and surf buddies. So that was a kind of fun connection there. It's always fun too, because Bill's pretty celebrated inside of surfing, but the surfing subculture is, as you're firmly aware, it's so fiercely protected that whenever one of us kind of makes it out outside of surfing, everyone's like, whoa, good work, or, or vice versa. When someone yeah. from outside of surfing does something profound inside the surfing world, it's it's pretty rare. Um, and, and it's interesting, because obviously as a journalist, you've been able to cover a variety of topics, whether it's you know, director James Cameron or the artist Michael Heiser, you know, mountain lions in Los Angeles, but surfing. And I think your coverage of it in season three of Lost Hills, it felt like it added just an extra layer of the personal for you. So in addition to getting to work with Bill, you know, can you tell us about how you yourself got into surfing? Yeah. So I um, grew up kind of on the East Coast, Midwest, overseas, never in California until I was 29 or something like 28, 29. Um, So I had really had very little contact with surfing, although um, I grew up coming to Rhode Island where I am now in the summers. And I realized that my guy friends were going surfing and it didn't ever occur to me to ask them if I could go. And now I'm like really actively mad at them that they didn't invite me to go when we were kids because it's so much easier to learn as a child. But um, when I got out to California, my husband sort of was like, he just, he tends to sort of have a vision of, he's like, I really think you're going to like this. He doesn't surf. He was like, he, we had moved to Venice and he um, went to Mollusk's surf shop and bought the prettiest board he saw. It's still, I'm still not able to ride that board, but <laughs> it is a beautiful surfboard. Um, it, it, it's probably like an eight foot board and I'm just much happier on like a nine four. But um, anyway, I was um, pregnant with our second child when he gave me that board for Christmas one year. And so the first thing I did, you know, once I had the baby and was kind of like back in business, I went and got a wetsuit and started trying to learn to surf first um, for a minute on that board. And then I was like, no, no, I, I need I need like a 10 foot board to start off and then work my way. Um, but it really has been in the past 10 years or so. And I just got really into it, especially with a group of women friends. So we used to like we all had little babies around the same age. We used to go to the beach on Sundays and our husbands would watch the kids and we would get in the water and we just didn't know what we were doing at all. And we would just go to, um, you know, in, in Venice to that little cove there, um, and mess around. And finally, you know, bit by bit sort of figured it out. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, I have beginner's mind for it. Like I'll never, get to any heights of greatness, but I can always have fun. And I love being in the water. And it's definitely opened up a whole different sense of even living in Los Angeles for me. Like, I'm not sure that I would still be there if I hadn't found the water as as a kind of really essential part of my life there. That makes sense. You know, without putting too fine a point on it, 
the surfing world, it has like you know, fairly like universally recognized hubs of activity, whether it's centered around waves, kind of like you're talking about with Los Angeles and Malibu, high profile surfers, the industry, whatever. You know, in Australia, you've got places like Torquay and Nairobi, Newcastle, Margaret River, the Gold Coast. In Europe, there's Peniche in Portugal or Hasegor in France. In South Africa, Durban and Bay. And in America, you, you have quite a few. You know, you've got New Smyrna Beach in Florida or Rockaway Beach in New York. And then in California, there's Santa Cruz and Huntington Beach and San Clemente and Malibu. And, you know, Malibu for surfing culture in California or even America or arguably kind of the world is one of the original epicenters of surfing. So I guess it's not hugely surprising that your Lost Hills series, which centers around this geographic region, would eventually at least bump into surfing. Um, and I'm wondering, is is that something that you were planning from the outset or something that you kind of discovered after the podcast began in 2021? I mean, what I thought the podcast was going to be when I actually started working on it in 2018, because it took a while for that first season to come out. <laughs> um, I thought it was going to kind of tell every story that's ever happened in Malibu in one season. And then I realized, you know, <laughs> no, I'm going to have to pace myself here. There's so much here. And it really did start, Lost Hills really did start with this desire to unpack what I was feeling in this place mm. that has, to me, feels like a a place of such sharp contrasts. And, you know, I often talk about it as this really, you know, this seductive, beautiful place where it's always magic hour and everybody's kind of glittering with the sand that's encrusted in their eyebrows or whatever. Right. But it also has such a shady, sometimes menacing, sometimes just mysterious feeling. And I, it was almost just an instinct on wanting to understand, like, am I, am I right? Is there something else? Is there something going on under the surface here? What is it about this place that inspires people to be so protective of it? It the first couple stories that I told in the the first two seasons of the podcast had to do with that um, that relationship to Malibu that people have, where they you know really policing this insider outsider question, mm -hmm. and um, in the case of Anthony Rauda in season one, who was convicted of killing Tristan Baudet um, in Malibu Creek State Park, that seemed to be operating in a pretty interesting and unusual and counterintuitive way because he was a survivalist living outdoors, but, you know, a lot of people thought was kind of defending his turf in a sense from the people who were camping there. And then in the second season, it was about a, a second season is about a man named Fred Rayler who um, was convicted of killing his wife and her child and and then suspected of killing his first wife actually too and all of that motive had to do with his desire to stay in Malibu this sort of dream place that he couldn't really afford that was kind of the prosecutorial theory of why they thought he had done these things and then the season about Mickey Dora it just seemed like okay if I'm really going to get at this question of who belongs and who's allowed and who's policing and what is at the heart of 
that in Malibu. Mickey Dora is a perfect charismatic figure through which to tell that story because he lived that insider outsider dynamic and he was, you know, credited as being the father of or inventor of localism. And he loved that. He didn't think that was um, an insult. He was happy to be known as the person who brought that um, kind of nastiness into surfing. I mean, as someone who grew up largely in Southern California, I live up in Oxnard, our office in Santa Monica. I've been commuting through Malibu for over a decade at this point and have a bunch of friends and colleagues in the area. And, you know, the, the way you describe it's so right. It, it's, it's this amazing mix of feeling and energy. And it feels like your series is is really in line with explorations, whether it's, you know, Joan, Didier, Joan Didion's Where I Was From or Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. It's it's like a character study where, you know, kind of the, the geographical backstop of Manifest Destiny is here. Like everyone literally runs out of space and it's, it's this weird amalgamation of characters and motivations and class politics and everything. It's really, really interesting. And you definitely dissect it from all angles in season three, um, where, as you pointed out, a figure like Mickey Dora, he's pretty singular in in his impact, not just on Malibu, but surf culture writ large. Yeah. And I think that it was the time, that time mm. in Malibu was so meaningful. It's like you said, there are these centers of surf culture around the mainland United States, but there are also moments in time where this sort of something accumulates. Mm. And I think that Malibu feels so rich and potent to me in that way because it was this undiscovered, it was like the it was like a secret spot almost. And, you know, the way that the surfers I talked to who had surfed there in the 50s and sadly you know if i'd done the podcast three years earlier there would have been many more voices to draw from the mm. the years of sort of 2020 to 2022 were um you know a lot of those people happened to pass away right. that i would have wanted to speak to you know uh, johnny fane and tubesake and you know there were just some major people um and forgive me if i'm getting the exact dates a little bit wrong with that um but I just remember the process of having to be like, oh, shoot, like right. we really missed the boat on this one and this one. But there's still a lot of people around who remember surfing Malibu when it was essentially a secret spot. And this idea of it as, you know, it still feels wild, but just practically, you know, like country lanes and knocking down or scaling fences of the old Adamson estate to get to Surfrider Beach. And then the people hanging out on the beach were such an eclectic group and had such um, kind of different motivations for being there. But, you know, they were like, Tubesick was essentially he was sleeping in a palm frond shack on the beach, as we know from the <laughs> Gidget movies and everything. But like, that's a that's a super bohemian way to live. That's what you would now say that is a homeless guy living on the beach. And he was making a really deliberate countercultural stand. And then what happened to that little scene when pop culture, it sort of like became pop culture overnight. I think that that's what makes 
it so powerful, like the way pe- everybody reacted to that. And all these characters, and Mickey Dora was probably the most, in my opinion, he was the most interesting of all of them and the most complicated and problematic of all of them. Sure. It They became kind of greater than themselves mm. instantly. And the culture was kind of... Um, it grew up around them so suddenly it was like one of those, um, you know, those like magic crystal sets where you just like <laughs> add water and then right. all of a sudden like there's a whole thing there. And it, I think, alienated the people who had been there before, but also um, it changed them and it brought all this kind of glamour and economic opportunity and resentment and all these things that I think are in the mix in Malibu in general today, not just surf Malibu, but Malibu in general. So, you know, I think the the way that these little interactions, like Kathy Coner walking down to the beach and meeting these guys and telling her dad about it, learning to surf, telling her dad about it, her dad writing a book, which becomes Gidget, which becomes movies, which becomes everybody in America wants to go surfing. Mm. And it, it just exploded something in a way. Um, and it, it made, yeah, it gave Mickey Dora this platform for his persona, which was um, something he was already crafting. And he was such a, you know, well, should we talk about what Mickey Dora was like, like where he came from? Yeah, I, I, I definitely want to dig into that. Well, why don't we take a quick break to get a word in yeah. from our sponsors? And then I think we want to dig into the meat of that in the next segment. So we'll Great. be right back. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup.
Hey, I hear you think podcasts are all about true crime, huh? Well, wise guy, the iHeartRadio app's got all kinds of podcasts. We got stuff you should know and stuff they don't want you to know. We got Bobby Bones, Big Boy, and Lou Later. We got SpongeBob Binge Pants and Exotic Erotic Storytime. We got Doughboys, Two Dudes in a Kitchen, Green Eggs and Dan. Hey, we got ElfQuest. We got podcasts for everything on the iHeartRadio app for free. If you don't download that, well, that's not just a true crime, my friend. That's criminal. So, full disclosure, this section of of our outline, I struggled with a little bit because Lost Hills Season 3 is so, so good. And I want to to live in that story. I want to talk to you about it and, you know, waste all your time. But that, it would do our listeners a little bit of a disservice because they truly need to kind of tap into that source themselves. But, you know, that said, there are certainly more than enough for lack of a better term, kind of macro topics in surfing and celebrity around the story of Mickey Dora and the reverberations of his life that I think are really interesting to dig into. So, you know, maybe as a starting point here is how you, and I know you touched on this really briefly, but specifically in developing this project, how did you zero in on the figure of Mickey Dora set against the cast of characters that that were present in Malibu at the time? So when I was researching an earlier season of Malibu, I was trying to gather what I would think of as sort of the primary source material, you know, like things that were written about Malibu in the moment, kind of around the 70s and 80s, that would help me understand something about the place that I could feel but no longer see, if that mm. makes sense. So it was like going back and getting some original material, getting closer to the time. And a friend of mine um, who is a surfer, who grew up in California, who's like just such a font of knowledge about everything related to surfing and California culture and comes from this family that's been in California for five generations, which is so rare to know people who've been in California that long. Um he said, oh, did you ever read Curse of the Shumash? Mm. And I was like, no, I never heard of Curse of the Shumash, but that sounds perfect for me. And because, you know, everybody that I was talking to about dark things in Malibu kept talking about the Shumash and how there was like a Shumash curse on Malibu. And that was partly to ex- partly explained the sort of powerful energy people feel there and the kind of evil that sometimes people mm feel or act on there. Um, So I I couldn't find it online. I went to eBay, bought this issue of Surfer from summer 1976, I want to say. And um, I read this piece and it was like, it was sort of like a, a, a bizarro history of Malibu told out of order, like not in chronological order, but with little date stamped entries of, you know, various things that had happened there. And it felt very like a sort of like insider insider. It was like a lot of hidden jokes and meanings. And I could just barely decode some of it, but it was all really intriguing and kind of like appalling some of it. And, um, and I was, and then I came across, there were all these references to, you know, Dora and, M. Dora and M. Chapin, and I didn't yet realize that those were the same person. And then there were 
pictures of him surfing. And obviously you see a picture of Mickey Dora surfing and immediately you want to like Google every video and image that exists of him surfing and uh, which I did. And, (laughs) And then there was this picture that I didn't yet realize was Mickey, but it's a guy holding a surfboard with a swastika on it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? Like, seriously, like what is going on? And I went back to the, I was like trying to figure out who wrote the story. And the byline was a really, I noticed that the byline was a weird name. It was Carlos Izan, I-Z-A-N. And then I was like, Izan, that's so weird. That's not a, a familiar, I can't even place what, origin that name might be have and then I realized that Izan is Nazi backwards and I was like oh this is just like some screwed up prank and what's going on and that that was sort of the rabbit hole that I fell down and I later figured out who had written it and that person never wanted to talk to me but you know somebody who was a a, a real kind of um collector and reflector of the culture of Malibu in the 70s and had been really close to Mickey Dora, actually. Um, and this thing that I read, Curse of the Shumash, was essentially like a, a Mickey manifesto in in a very veiled form. Um, and then I started reading the stuff Mickey himself wrote in Surfer um, throughout his life. And the interviews he gave, which were few, but always very, um, you know, f- full of... Uh, I don't know, misdirection or like things to make you, to confuse you or make him seem like he was someone that he wasn't. And then his own essays about his travels and also the things he was trying to get people to send him checks for. (laughs) So like hilarious. And um, so I just got, that's how I kind of got so intrigued by him. And it seemed like I also, I have to say there was a superficial thing too, which is that he just didn't look like the typical right. mid-century California surfer. And then that coupled with this swastika, I was just intrigued. I just wanted to understand what his relationship was to California culture and what he was doing with this with this hate symbol and how how that was operating. So um that that's how I got into him. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's the series, season three itself, boasts like an amazing cross-section of figures in terms of who you spoke to about Mickey Dora. You know, you've got, uh, Jesus, Drew Campion, Jim Kempton, Matt Warshaw, Diane Oosterveen, you know, Henry Ford, Daniel Dwayne, Kathy Coner Zuckerman, Kevin Naughton, Craig Peterson, I think you referenced them already, you know, David Renson, Linda Cui. I'm sure there's, there's people I'm forgetting, but just Kelly in, Slater. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I often forget about Kelly Slater. Um, even, but, he, even he has Mickey Dora stories. Of course. Of course. You know, and it is one of those things like, I mean, uh, we, we have a priority judge on tour at the moment who was like a four time national New Zealand surfing champion. He's a little bit older now. He's a great surfer. His name's Ian Ratso Buchanan. And I was talking to him a few years ago and he's got a story. He's the one that actually got Mickey his stuff out of storage in New Zealand and got it to him in France. It's like he's just he's just one of those people that was was dotted across surf culture. But, you know, just in terms of process, you know, when you set out on a project like this, do you have kind of a general target number or a cap in terms of sources mm-hmm. and 
are there targets in terms of diversity, not just different kinds of people, but different perspectives on a, on a topic? Or for you, for you professionally, is it more something where you see what you get and then you determine like, however many people you need to kind of paint as fair, balanced and picture you, you, can, you can get out of it? I mean, with this season, because Mickey died in 2002, mm-hmm. it had a kind of closed, it was kind of encapsulated in a sense. Like right. there, some stories have an open-ended quality because things are still happening. All of Mickey's, Mickey's story is complete in a certain way. Sure. But so what I, I had a list of people that I thought would help tell that story and of course, I read every book about him and saw, you know, watched everything and read everything that I could um, and then went after those people to see if they would talk to me. I didn't know when I set out that Gidget, Kathy Koner Zuckerman, was going to become such a big part of the story. Right. And that was a, a really wonderful revelation of the reporting was that there was actually all of this fascinating overlap between her life story and her family history and Mickey's life story and his family history. And it made his resentment of her, it put it in a, in a completely different light. Mm. It, it felt almost like a sibling rivalry to me more than, um, you know, the, the way he had framed it was um, he was so dismissive of her and of course, you know, the only real money Mickey ever made, honestly, was by being in the a stunt double in the Gidget movie. So it was funny that he was so mad about it all. But, um, y- you know, the I think there's for me that it's always important to have room in a story to discover things. And even when it feels like it's got kind of fixed parameters, because you know, here's a person I'm not I'm not going to be able to talk to Mickey. Right. And I don't know what new I'm going to get from the people I talk to. But in fact, it turned out that there was a lot that people hadn't said before hmm. that I got to. And, and particularly, I want to just say that Linda Kai is just an incredible, fascinating character and really interesting woman. And she was Mickey's longest term romantic partner. And she was with him, you know, through the years of being on the run from the FBI all around the world. And her stories are are absolutely incredible and actually will really break your heart sure. by the end. Um, so I, I felt like people had untold stories in them. Mm. And then I also just found these um, these connections that were surprising and exciting. And LA was just a smaller world, was a smaller place back then. So of course, Mickey Dora's Hungarian family and Kathy Koner's Czechoslovakian family knew each other. It makes sense. Right. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Linda Kai because actually in my notes and in listening to the podcast, I wrote her name down and circled it a bunch and went, if anyone deserves a movie out of this entire story, I think Linda's got to be a primary candidate. She's seen it was amazing just getting her version of events. And, and obviously that's, you know, kind of tip of the iceberg. As you said, it, Mickey's story has a version of a cap on it because he passed away in 2002. But I'm sure we'll get into it here in a minute. But 
because of the way he led his life and, and so many different lives and kind of the impressions that he made on so many people. And I'd argue as someone who works in surfing in 2023, like, like his life and, and the impressions that people had of it and who he was and his belief system are still reverberating today. So it's almost this, some, it's almost kind of a song that hasn't ended yet in a, in a way. I think that's true. And that is part of what I wanted to understand and, and maybe shed some light on for sure. people because I think that he is still a revered figure. And I think that some people who look up to him still or kind of think that he embodies something about surfing, maybe mm. something that's been lost about surfing. Um, he's got that kind of, he's a, a folk hero in a way mm. to a lot of people. Um, and I think it it was important to me to bring into the foreground of that story of Mickey the glamorous folk hero some of the stuff that is just wasn't okay back then, isn't okay now. Sure. And I feel like, you know, I, I'm not saying I was trying to create a reckoning around Mickey Dora, but just to kind of have a complete picture of if this figure is going to be held up in surf culture as kind of, you know, a foundational figure, let's be really honest about what he was like and what he, how he treated people and what he did. I mean, his, he was a con artist. Yeah. But that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. The, the, the cons were pretty small potatoes actually in the end. It's mystifying that, the FBI chased him for so long. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It was just, it's surprising. Um, makes you think something else was going on. And this sort of self-mythologizing is all really fascinating too. Right. And he he did it and he had other people who did it for him. Um, and he was sort of a master at all of that. And um, But it's there's darker stuff there that isn't about him writing bad checks. I'm glad you brought that up, right? Because... You know, in reading the David Renson book, all for a few perfect waves and, and Renson features in your series, and there's actually kind of a new revelation for him at the end. I won't spoil it, but I've, I found that part really interesting. But also what's really evident in listening to this podcast is Dora, like all of us, I suppose, but to be clear, not specifically like him, you know, that contained multitudes. And there were a lot of versions of Mickey out there in terms of the impressions he left on people. There was the preternaturally talented Malibu surfer from the 1950s, the you know, culture defining, you know, for better or worse, anti-hero of the 1960s, the Interpol wanted global grifter of the 1970s. But, you know, sprinkled throughout, how do I put this? There was this ongoing performative behavior, this attitude, these comments that ranged in terms of hostility and bigotry and racism, you know, misogyny, quite a lot of hypocrisy, you know, ad nauseum. And, and I don't want to spoil anything, but, but to crib, I think, a comment by Daniel Duane from the show, you know, once it settles in, and by settles in, it settles in in surf culture, that that behavior and those comments are attributed to you. It's like, 
well, what's the difference between performing as a Nazi or a racist or a bigot or a misogynist for whatever reason and the impression that's left with others and that ripple effect being that you are actually a Nazi or a racist or a bigot or a misogynist and, and that those perspectives are even worthy of adoption just because someone's a great surfer, you know? And it's just amazing how it's, you get all these different versions of him through this series. And it's, it's an interesting thing, as you point out, it's not a reckoning, but it's a more fully fleshed image of who this person was. I'm curious, you know, how did you personally and professionally kind of square the multitudes of Mickey Dora? And what is your personal opinion of him, you know, through the lens of hindsight in this project? I mean, it's always tempting to be, you know, armchair psychologist. Sure, so, yeah, right. Um, I think that, um, you know, he he was born in Hungary to this very elegant Hungarian wine connoisseur, you know, art lover father. And his mom was a young woman who'd grown up in Los Angeles and was on a trip to Europe when she met um, Mickey's father, whose name was also Miklos Dora. So Mickey was a little bit of a surprise and he was born in Hungary. The parents got married or probably the parents got married. Then he was born in Hungary. And then when he was really young, I think six months old or something, they came um, to the U.S. Uh, maybe actually... I can't remember now if he was a few years old or if he was a few months old, but in any case, he was little, um, came here and really grew up here. His father started this restaurant called Little Hungary, and it was, you know, Errol Flynn was a frequent diner there, Melina Daytrick. It was just like this Hollywood place. And um, his mom and dad just had nothing in common at all. And they ended up splitting up. And she got together with a San Onofre surfer called Guard Chapin. And Guard Chapin, I'm sure people listening to this will know, except that it's pretty far in the past. So maybe sure. he'll be less familiar. I mean, he was sort of like a 1930s San Onofre surfer. Mm -hmm. And he was considered just like, he was sort of like the hot dogger of San Onofre mm. and he, a big jerk, you know, just like right. he was the guy yelling out of my way, kook. And he was the one who was always, you know, riffing on anti-Semitic subjects. Mm. And he was sort of this, um, he was kind of like a, uh, just rough around the edges, not mean, a bully, a drinker. And I really suspect and you know things I read and heard kind of inform this perspective but I think he really bullied Mickey mm. and he probably bullied Mickey for being dark haired being mm. darker skinned ha maybe Mickey had an accent when he was little Mickey's dad definitely had an accent um I think that he created a lot of shame in Mickey about Mickey's otherness that's my guess I mm. don't know mm. um but Mickey certainly um, adopted a lot of guards' attitudes and opinions while also at the same time having his father's expensive taste. So he had this kind of like, you know, he was the this debonair um, roughneck in this weird way where yeah. he, you know, so when he got to Malibu, he wasn't from Malibu. He right. wasn't like, 
he never had a house in Malibu. How was Mickey the inventor of localism in Malibu? He just did it. He just took on that mantle. He lived in Brentwood. He would show up at the beach in some kind of like fancy race car that he begged, borrowed, or stole, who knows. And, and you know, he was such a good surfer. He claimed the spot, basically. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what I mean about being this insider-outsider right. is that he defined this exclusionary attitude and he knew it so well because he'd been on the other side of it, I think. Mm. And But instead of that creating empathy in him, it created hostility. Mm -hmm. And he turned that on everybody else and most especially on the person who probably had most in common with him on a deep ethnographic level, which was Gidget herself. That's that's what I, that's my read on Mickey and his, um, you know, animosity toward out, so-called outsiders. And that's such an interesting part of the story too. You know, surfing, not unlike a lot of activities, I guess, right? Whether it's art or music or business or sports, tends to deify and by extension, forgive and ignore all manner of faults, pretty much anyone who does it well, right? Like we, we saw it with Mickey. We still see it with Mickey. We see it with surfers in the modern era. And I'm not even, I'm not even talking about kind of comparative behavior like Mickey's just the phenomenon that surfing is such a profound experience. And anyone who has ever done it tends to be in just true and genuine awe of people who do it well. And it kind of borders on cult worship and that kind of worship then extends to a reverence of these individuals and their respective behaviors and positions well outside of surfing. And I'm curious um, what your thoughts are on this and if it's something that you've experienced in writing and researching about subjects outside of surfing. Hmm. I think you're really right that when people are um, great at what they do, it becomes a part of their charisma. Their flaws become a part of their charisma, actually. And mm. it's very hard to disentangle that. Um, I mean, I definitely, when <laughs> the the stories that you mentioned at the top, like James Cameron and Michael Heiser, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like the, these are all these very um, incredibly talented, incredibly driven, laser focused men who, you know, do their thing at all costs. Mm -hmm. And, um, I find those to be interesting character studies. I don't know. I can't Yeah, someone, you're going to have to armchair <laughs> psychologize me, but, um, I just, I think that those kind of extremes of behavior and, dedication. And then also, you know, I think the fallout is interesting too mm. to talk about. And it's not just, not just for the sake of, you know, of the drama of it, but because there's always, you're never just an individual. You're always operating in a community, whether you um, acknowledge it or not. So um, yeah, I think I don't know. I mean, I personally think that it's worth talking about the 
I, I don't think we should avoid talking about these figures who are troubling. I think it's interesting to me to try to understand how their charisma works, mm-hmm. not in spite of, but maybe sometimes partially because of their most difficult characteristics. I think it's fair. And I think I, it's one of those things too, like having in a prior life come from like a PR and comms background, you know, mid 2000s. In the information age, it's, it's impossible. Like, there's no daylight between who you really are and who you project that you are. I'm sure some people still pull it off if they have the means to. But in a way, kind of to what you're saying, it's like, well, if we're if we're celebrating and deifying someone for their accomplishment, it it's worth exploring the, the entire spectrum of who that person is. You know, the good and the bad. Because pretending that they're very good at this one thing, which means they're good at everything, and whatever happens, you know in terms of their marriage or raising their kids or their, you know, positions on economics or whatever manner of subjects. It's like, just because they're very good at one singular thing doesn't mean that everything they do should be revered. Well, and also, you know, Jim Kempton was really interesting on this. Mm. He was sort of saying, well, doesn't it bring, you know, talking about Mickey, he knew him. He got his passport stolen by him. He um, stole his girlfriend, apparently. Like, that's what I learned in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. Um, but uh, he, yeah, that was his good revenge. He got on, on Mickey. Was I know, he, I know he, Jim. I know Jim. And I heard that. And I went, oh, okay, great. Um, so, but he, he said, you know, it kind of makes him think about the whole debate about Picasso, you know, mm, like, mm. how do you deal with, and Mickey is kind of the, the artist of the surf world. You know, he's the one who in a sense was so self-conscious about his persona and his way of riding a wave. And, and he also rejected the commercialization of surfing and possibly because he couldn't figure out how to do it to greatest advantage for himself. But, um, he, he has that kind of reputation of, of, of being the purest and, um, so I also think that's interesting. Like, what does that mean? If Mickey right. Dora, who I see is quite adulterated in his character, if he's the surfing purist, I mean, I just wanted to understand that better. But in any case, Kempton was like, you know, it's this Picasso question. Should we just not show the Picassos? And I don't think that. I think we should show the Picassos and also have the labels on the wall that tell the whole story sure. of, you know, if we're looking at a portrait of Dora Maar, let's understand more about her and not focus just on on him. Um, but I think these figures are part of the culture. Mm -hmm. Mickey Dora is part of surf culture. You can't undo that. And so making it a more, um, just making the picture more complete, I guess, is Mm -hmm. where I see the value. Plus the stories are just so good. I mean, they're just like these, the craziest, wildest, weirdest stories. So, and, you know, some of those people who can tell the stories are getting into their 80s. And Mm. I felt so lucky to get to capture some of that um, because that is living history that's going away. It's a great point, you know, and in listening to the podcast, you know, one could be forgiven for wondering if elements of the 
the Frank Abagnale story from Catch Me If You Can were actually pulled from Mickey's story. You know, the Griffs and the international uh, travel and being pursued by Interpol and the FBI. And, you know, there are, from my understanding, some comparatively darker elements to the Dora story. I'm not sure how Spielberg or Hanks or DiCaprio would pull off a movie about Mickey, but... You know, the, the motivation and the propelling force for him seems to be much different, too. You know, since we're in armchair psychologist territory, I'm going to go one here. Yeah. It, it's not an original thing to come out and say surfing is like an addiction or a religion or a whole identity. And, and you know, you, Dana, as a surfer, you've, you've felt what a profound experience wave riding is, just as I have, just as if not uh, many, probably most of our, our listeners have. And both in the Renson book and through Lost Hill Season 3, it feels like, as a listener, you can focus in on those early moments of bliss for Mickey Dora, you know, in riding Malibu virtually alone in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And it seems like his entire life was spent chasing that feeling or trying to create that and recreate that environment. And often as we've talked about through, you know, aggressive or misanthropic or hateful and or downright illegal behavior. But it, it feels like he did so for the remainder of his life. You know, his aggression in the water or his railing against outsiders, his grifting, his being on the lamb and international travel. It seems like you could boil it all down to the high, for lack of a better word, that he received just in those early days of surfing Malibu. Um, we should be clear, I'm not a medical professional, but it seems like there is almost that pattern of addictive behavior throughout his story. And you can almost trace it back to that very simple time that he often references himself. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me like that was grace, you know, mm. to, to be in that spot at that time and learning and mastering that really lovely wave when there wasn't anybody else there. And I think that a lot of Malibu stories have a, a paradise lost component mm. to them. And I, so it resonates with me, what you're saying quite a bit that, you know, this idea of a paradise that you're going to be exiled from. I think that that's very powerful. That's, that's actually a big through line of the whole season um they're the the whole show season yeah. seasons one two and three um and i think that there's something about that place it's like you said it's you know the the edge of the world and it has this special beauty it has this special allure it has it's very small it really can't tolerate the number of people who live near and even in it. Um, but it's especially the proximity of this, like a little natural place that is at the edge of America's only megacity is like, that's just, um, that pressure is fascinating. And I think that, yeah, the idea of this being yours or deciding it was yours and then um, 
fear of losing it and then losing it in Mickey's case. Um, I think that he was driven to a lot of what he did because of that. But I, you know, I think that he was also just always trying to get something for nothing. And oh, sure. so he, he kind of couldn't keep doing that. And he'd burned a few too many bridges in Southern California. It was getting, he was going to have to start paying for some of his crimes. And that wasn't Mickey's style, you know, he, so, um, that was also part of what motivated him to, you know, it was self-imposed exile, but he never, he never framed it as he was running from the law. That would be mortifying to him. I think he, he framed it as, you know, Gidget ruined paradise and I had to get out of there. I couldn't take it anymore. It's an amazing series. Um, we're going to take one more break to get another word in from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll hit a couple more topics. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Manduka was founded in 1997 with the simple idea that a better yoga mat could make a world of difference. For generations, Manduka has revolutionized the yoga space by providing purposely crafted products that enable a more joyful practice, whatever that looks like for you. The collaboration between Manduka and Jerry Lopez honors Jerry's profound dedication to both surfing and yoga disciplines. The limited edition collection showcases Jerry's signature camouflage print inspired by his surfboards. It fuses his iconic surf style with Manduka's commitment to quality and sustainability, offering everyone a unique expression of their practice. We all know that having the right gear is essential and a yoga mat is no different. Feel the benefits of yoga with Manduka's soulfully engineered, eco-friendly products designed to inspire your practice wherever you go. The Manduka and Jerry Lopez collection want to inspire you to practice yoga however you choose to. And from now until June 10th, you will get 15% off of all products when you visit manduka.com with the code THELINEUP15. That's manduka.com code the lineup 1515 uh we're here on the lineup we are here with dana goodyear who has just completed season three of her lost hills podcast about mickey dora it is fantastic everyone should check it out you know, you have a, a a lot of kind of projects going. It seems like Dana, you're you, you're not just a podcaster. You're a journalist. You're a poet. Looking at the the balance of 2023, we're here in July. What are your kind of projects throughout the end of the season, end of the year? Excuse me. Mm. Um, well, I am working really hard on season four already, actually, um, which is another story in Malibu that kind of, I knew from the beginning that I would try to tackle this story, but it's a really stubborn one. 
Um, it's about the unexplained death of a woman called Maitrese Richardson, who was released from the uh, Malibu Lost Hill Sheriff Station in 2009, just a little after midnight, and then seen in the neighborhood of Montanito, which is across from Malibu Creek State Park. And then she was seen the next morning. And then 11 months later, her remains were discovered in a canyon in Montanito. And um, it's been a like an ongoing, unexplained death. And mm. when I started interviewing people in Malibu, when there were, when the father, Tristan Baudet, had just been killed in the campground, everybody was talking about my trace again because it's just been an open wound in that community. And I didn't then see how I could add to that story. Um, the story has been sort of stuck where it was left in 2010 when her remains were discovered. But um, I'm actually making some progress on it. And um, I think it's going to be a pretty intense year working on that project. Mm. Um, that's one thing I'm doing. But then I'm also um, doing my work for The New Yorker. And I'm, I'm working right now on a piece about the this couldn't be more different. Um, either from Mickey Dora or from Maitrese Richardson, um, but uh, a piece about the Chinese scientist who edited the embryos of babies and then those babies were born, the first gene-edited babies to be born. Um, they're like four and a half now. Nobody, They're actually, they're totally shrouded in mystery, but it's a story about him and what happened to him and what's happening in that field of uh, human genome editing, which is, um, you know, just, I like to keep it eclectic. I'll just put it that way. Um, and I'm always doing, you know, small stories for the magazine, but that's the, that's the big one that I have to get done this summer. And, um, yeah. And then I'm trying to turn season two of Lost Tales into a TV show. So that's a whole other project. And then I think at some point, uh, maybe around June of next year, I'm going to look around and try to figure out what I'm doing. But I'm going. I'm going to go surfing in Fiji in October, so I'm oh, super excited about that. I, I have never been there, <laughs> and that's what I'm. I'm trying to meet all my deadlines now, so I can go surfing in Fiji in October. I love it. You mentioned, you know, season four. It, it, you said the story was a little bit stubborn, but you know, as a fan and a listener of seasons one through three. It does feel like there are, are more than ample people willing to come out and talk about sometimes these very, very dark subject matters in the Lost Hills area. It's almost kind of like a Twin Peaksy, David Lynchian sister. You get these amazing characters coming out of the woodwork. Sometimes they're in the sheriff's department themselves. It, it must be a fascinating place to get just sources for information. Malibu is full of characters. It is incredible. <laughs> it's totally incredible. Um, yeah, I found the same thing. I'm just like, I, I keep also getting emails from people telling me different stories in Malibu I should tell. So uh, yeah. I'm not, I, 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 there might be no end to this series. <laughs> 
I love it. Well, we did put out some uh, feelers for questions from our Instagram community at the lineup pod, and we got a ton back, but we've, we've whittled them down to three for you. Um, the first question is from at too cool for Megan, who asks uh, a personal one, I guess. What were some foods that you've eaten that at first you were skeptical about, but you actually found delicious? Oh, that's funny because I I wrote a book about sort of experimental eating. Ah, um, okay, a fan. So, yeah, right. <laughs> um, that's cool. Let's see, what was I skeptical about? I mean, I find tongue to be that's it's a pretty basic one that you know lots of people enjoy and is a delicacy in many places. I find it a little bit. Um, mentally hard to deal with but then flavor wise i think it's good it it tastes like like super tender beef basically but it's just the idea that it's a tongue is upsetting to me so um that's i would say that that's, that's fair one. if someone had called it like a filet or something you'd be like oh, that's great um, just tell me it's filet mignon yeah I'll, I'll wolf it down uh second question is from et mia fuku who asks uh, what was one of the more challenging stories for you to write and why? Um, I did another, a different science story a few years ago, um, which is probably why I'm doing this um, edited baby story now. But it was about a scandal in the world of, the, of stem cell science mm. where this young Japanese woman who was this very brilliant student had um, published a paper in a prestigious scientific journal and she had collaborators at her home university in Tokyo and in um, and at Harvard and then it was really quickly debunked and she was made out to be just like this a total fraudster and it was such an interesting story because of the the sort of um, human elements involved. The science was really hard to explain. And and my sort of, um, my lack of access to what was happening in Japan was made it really hard because I don't speak Japanese. And there was a, a lot of uh, desire to just have this go away. But there had been all this tragedy surrounding um, when the scandal broke, like one of her mentors, who was one of the most famous stem cell biologists in Japan, committed suicide and left a note saying basically like, you should believe her. She's telling the truth. And and there was all these elements, these cultural elements of, you know, sexism in science, both in Western science and in Asia and um, ways in which people were reacting to the work of this young woman that had nothing to do with the work itself. The work itself had some problems too, but um, there, there was, that was a really challenging one um, just because of it. It was a story that there were people who didn't want it to be any story that people don't want told is going to be hard. Mm. But when you add language barrier and then scientific language is sort of its own, it's another barrier. Um, that one, that one was hard. And I'm thinking about it a lot lately because I'm doing something that is similarly hard right now. Makes sense. Uh, third question that we pulled from Instagram is from etright.fam who asks, what is your favorite poem and why? And there's a sub question. Uh, will you recite some of it? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, God, no. I'll, let me answer um, these in reverse. No. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favorite poem... I, I'll say what my, I always have 
loved this collection of poems mm. called The Wild Iris by Louise Glick. Um, each poem is told from the perspective of a different flower at a different season and a different time of day. And that sounds really like, um, I don't know, like sweet or pretty, but it isn't. It's really, they're incredibly powerful and taken together. I think they really are a whole poem. Um, but it's just a fascinating way to talk about human experience through these natural elements. And I just, I love the way she had to know so much mm. and observe so closely in order to write the poems. But I don't know any of them by heart. It's a great answer. Well, thank you to everyone that wrote in at the, at the lineup pod. We are now down to our final segment of the podcast. It's time for the lightning round. These are 10 questions right. for you to answer as quickly as you can. Oh, God. Okay. If you could only have one surfboard set up for the rest of your life, a single fin, a twin fin, a thruster, a quad, a bonzer, or finless, which would you choose? Single fin. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Pizza. Last book you read? Um, Pineapple Street. <laughs> Best surf film ever. Um, oh gosh, best surf film ever. Um, I mean, Big Wednesday, I just watched it again recently. I love that. Great movie. Uh, what is one wave that you never have to go back to? I guess if you've had a bad experience with one. Hmm. I was really, really scared at Surf Ranch but I am going back there. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Totally. What, 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 what was scary about it for you? I broke my finger on the way out the door to go there. Oh. And so I was in agony, but I was also not going to miss that trip. Sure. So it just, it combined with the sound of that, of the train. Sure. The, the pain and the train together, that was what was so scary. I ended up having so much fun, but at first I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm, I was really spun out, but I've got to go back and conquer my fears. It's a fair point. I'm glad you're going back. And um, it's funny because some people, oh, you, you work at the WSL, you guys must be there all the time. And the truth is, no, not really. But the few times I have gotten a priority wave there, same pro existential dread where I'm like, I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve this. The sound is making me nuts. It's it's a it's an amazing place and uh, super fun, even though it's scary. So I agree with you. If you only get to surf one wave for the rest of your life, which would it be? It's just my little my home break here in Little Compton, Rhode Island. Great answer. Uh, best person to share a lineup with. Oh, and my friends. Oh, or whoever. In, yeah. um, I'll, I'll say my friend Robin Beaker. Great answer. Uh, worst person to share a lineup with? All those bros at Topanga. Last one. 
Uh, finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by. I'm going surfing in the morning. That's a great answer. Dana Goodyear, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been one of my favorite. Thank you so much for all the seasons of Lost Hills, but certainly Lost Hills season three about Mickey Dora. All of our listeners should definitely check it out and uh, can't wait to see what you do next. And I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you so much, Dave. It was awesome talking to you and I just really appreciate you. This was super fun. So that's it. That's the lineups conversation with Dana Goodyear. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't yet listened to season three of her podcast, Lost Hills, detailing the life and legacy of Mickey Dora, do yourself a favor and check it out. You won't be disappointed. Stop number nine on the 2023 WSL Championship Tour, the Corona J-Bay Open, will finish this week and is streaming live at worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. Do not miss it. Today's episode is produced by Miguel Clemente with art direction by Jason Penning and copywriting by Dan Willen. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges that it's recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, the Kumeye, and the Sakanet native people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup.